Thanks for tuning in to this message from Greenhouse Church. We are continuing our series on the movement. Listen now as Andrea Levings continues our teaching for the book of Acts. The Bible covers a lot of history. So just to kind of help us zone in on where we're at, we're gonna be looking at Acts chapter eight today about a man named Philip and an Ethiopian eunuch. And in Acts chapter eight, this is important to remember, Jesus had only just risen, uh, recently physically raised from the dead. And then he was on earth for about 40 days before he ascended into heaven. And during those 40 days, he gathered some of those followers closest to him and he gave them a teaching. And the crux of it is this, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he promised to be with us always. Now this teaching is commonly referred to as the Great Commission. And so Jesus gives this teaching, he's on earth for about 40 days, and then right, right before he ascends, he gives another teaching, which we can read in Acts 1.8, and he makes a great promise. He promises that he's gonna send us his Holy Spirit, but then he says, the reason I'm sending you the Holy Spirit is to be your helper, but it's also so that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, where they're at, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus gives two teachings right before he ascends to heaven, and they both are this, go make disciples of all nations. I think that maybe Jesus was trying to drill in the point for us to understand that his great commission is not a general command to just make as many disciples as possible, but his great commission is a specific command to make disciples of all nations. And up until this point in Acts chapter eight, Pastor Will Jones spoke about this last week. We hadn't seen this happening. Disciples were being made in Jerusalem, which I wanna be really clear. The heart of today, if you already wanna know what I want you to do, I want you to make disciples where you're at, in your city. And so that is absolutely part of the Great Commission. But the fullness of the Great Commission wasn't happening because disciples were only being made in Jerusalem and not outside of Jerusalem. But Acts chapter eight is the beginning of us seeing this start to happen. So that's what we're gonna look at today. If you would go ahead, if you are able to, if you wouldn't mind rising for the reading of God's word, we're going to read in Acts chapter eight, starting in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit of the Lord said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he, the eunuch said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him about the good news of Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Side note, see, over here is water. What prevents any of you from being baptized today? We'll get back to that later, don't worry. And when they came out of the water, 
The spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip, him, uh, but Philip found himself at Azotus. As he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. You can go ahead and be seated. So we've heard about Philip earlier in Acts. He was one of the chief evangelists being used throughout a great move of God. He's in Samaria where the Bible says that the lame are walking and crowds are coming to the Lord. And an angel, which in Greek means messenger of God, spoke to Philip and said, rise, so supposedly it's early in the morning, and go to this desert road between Jerusalem and Gaza. Philip responds, he goes to the road, and while he's there, the, then the spirit tells him to run up to a chariot. As he's running to a chariot, he hears the man inside is reading from the book of Isaiah. And Philip responds, do you understand what you are reading? Now, if you've ever read the book of Isaiah, you understand this is a very normal question to ask someone if they understand the book of Isaiah. And if you don't get that, just read the book of Isaiah after service. You'll be like, yeah, no, that was a normal question. The eunuch responds to Philip, how can I understand what I'm reading unless someone explains it to me? So Philip climbs up in the chariot, he breaks down scripture, he shares the full gospel with this eunuch. We understand that the eunuch comes to faith because a little while later, the chariot comes across some water and the eunuch is like, wait, there's water. What's to stop me from going all in and being baptized to publicly announce my decision to follow Jesus? And I guess Philip responded, there's nothing to stop you because Philip climbs down in the water with the eunuch, he baptizes him. And then the most normal expected part of the whole, the whole passage, the Holy Spirit physically transports Philip to another place. And then the eunuch climbs back up in his chariot with the scroll of Isaiah. And he goes on his way, presumably back to Ethiopia because the passage says he'd been coming from Jerusalem. So very run-of-the-mill story. I'm sure all of us relate to this encounter a lot. But that's what we're going to look at this morning. So I'm going to pray. Jesus, help. Lord, help me to preach this the way that you want me to. And God, more than anything, I pray that our eyes would be on you and that we would just love you more as a result of this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So... Uh, fun announcement, some of you know, some of you don't. I'm actually getting married exactly 12 weeks from today, <laughs> which I want to say this really clearly before I say the next thing. I am so excited and so ready to marry Dan Serafan. I cannot wait. So my heart is full of joy for that. This is also true. Wedding planning does not spark joy for me. So... <laughs> I don't know if any of you can relate. I hate event planning. And some of you have been amazing. You have sent me spreadsheets or to-do lists. I think I saw the defados back there. Danielle has like hooked me up and the people have tried to help me with wedding planning. And thank you, I need all the help I can get. But here's the thing that's interesting that I've learned about wedding planning. Like almost all of the, the checklists and everything are for the reception. That's where all the decisions are at. There's very little planning for the ceremony, at least what I've come across in lists so far. And in my moments where I'm not just completely overwhelmed by wedding planning, the thing I'm actually looking forward to most from that day is saying my vows. I'm very ready and very excited. Pastor Mike is going to lead Dan and I in our vows to be in covenant with each other and before the Lord. And I think I'm so excited for that moment in particular because I realize, I know the reception's going to be good. Don't worry. We're going to have cake and dancing or whatever. If we finish planning, there'll be cake. So the reception's going to be fun. <laughs> But I just can't wait for the vows because I realize how significant of a moment that's going to be. And I'm excited because I'm very confident and ready to enter into that moment of significance. 
But clearly, Dan and I have been together for multiple years. That's not the first moment of significance that we'll have. In fact, one of our first moments that I recognize now that I didn't then was actually seven years ago. Dan's microchurch leader brought him to my office. I was at the church. And he was like, hey, this is Dan. He has questions about missions. And he didn't word it quite like this, but basically what he meant was like, hey, can you just drop everything you're doing and meet with him and answer his questions about missions? (laughs) And um, if you know me very well, I am very type A. I'm a planner. So nine out of 10 times, my answer to that question would be, I would be happy to schedule a meeting to talk with you more about your interest. And guys, I don't know if it was the Lord or not. I can tell you I honestly did not. Neither of us had any romantic inclinations at that time. I was going to say no, and I felt like there was some unction or small voice that told me to make time for this man. And honestly, I thought maybe it was because he was going to go to the mission field. So I was like, okay, Lord, I'll follow you. I'll make time for him. And so we got coffee, and we got together, and we talked, and that was really the beginning of our friendship. And I had no idea going home that night that my coffee and that my meeting had any significance. I didn't know that that moment had mattered. But looking back now, it it mattered a lot. It was a very significant moment in my life. And I want my life to be full of significant moments. I want my life to matter. And I think I'm not the only one in here who feels that way. We want our lives to be significant and not only in narcissistic or bad ways. See, if you're in here and you identify as a human being, or if you're a Greenhouse Tampa joining us online and you identify as a human, then that means you were made in the image of God. So the very image of which you reflect screams significance. So you were made for a significant life. But here's the problem. I think, at least I know I am, I was bad with that moment with Dan. I think that we are really bad at identifying significant moments from insignificant moments. I think we mess up at it all the time. And I think we strive for significance and we don't realize sometimes when the significant moments are happening. We don't get to enjoy them. There's a TV show called The Office, and one of the most popular lines in that is, there's a line from it that says, I wish there was a way to know you were in the good old days before you actually left them. And what if some of us are in the good old days right now? What if you are in the middle of the life-changing coffee conversation, or you just prayed for someone and you walked away and you have no idea the life-changing effect that's gonna have on someone, or you share a couple dollars because you feel like the Lord told you to be generous or invite college students to your house, and we don't realize the significance of what the Lord is doing in that moment. We miss the good day when we're in it. My question is, how can any of us be sure that anything we do will be significant? What I've seen from this passage with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch that I think is so clearly displayed, and we'll jump more into it, I don't think that Philip knew how significant his encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch was, but Philip partnered with what God was doing in the Ethiopian eunuch's life, and because of that, this story holds all kinds of significance. I don't think that Philip understood what he was saying yes to when the Spirit told him to go to a desert place, but I think that maybe Philip was in the habit of partnering with the Lord and trusting him and saying yes regardless of if it made sense to Philip or not. Because here's what I've gotten from this passage. I don't think God has, and by I don't think I know, God does not have the problem we do in recognizing if something is significant or not. And the more that you line your life up to what God is already doing, the more the things that you do will matter. Now, I'm going to say that one more time because I'm still teaching it to myself. 
the more that I line my life up to what God is already doing, the more I partner with him and what he's already doing, the more what I do is actually going to matter. And one of my big ideas for today is just that idea that I get from this passage. It's that we are supposed to partner with what God is already doing. Now we saw earlier in Acts that Philip's already a deacon. It says earlier in this passage that he's in Samaria, he's preaching signs and wonders, people are coming to the Lord. I don't think that this is a crisis identity moment for Philip where he's like, hmm, I wonder if my life matters or what should I do in my life right now? Like I've been there, I'm thinking this isn't one for Philip. But Philip responds, he hears a messenger that tells him go to a desert road and Philip responds. I think that Philip may have been in the practice to hear from the Lord daily. And so when the Lord wanted to partner with him, Philip was just in the practice of, yes, I will go where you tell me to go, Lord. I will do what you tell me to do. See, as an early disciple of Jesus, I think Philip understood that Jesus's earthly ministry was only a part of the story. Jesus didn't stop working when he went to heaven, and he will continue working by partnering with men and women filled with the Holy Spirit and committed to his great commission, because that's who Philip was, and that's who I know a lot of you in this room are too. That's who I want to be. I can't say that's who Philip was and that's who Andrea is, but that's who Andrea wants to be at least. Sometimes I do it better than others. I've mentioned this idea of the Great Commission a few times. You can read about it in its entirety in Matthew 28, but the crux of that is what I said earlier. Jesus has, sent, or Jesus has come back from the dead, risen from the dead, and he tells his disciples, go make disciples of all nations. Now, I'm not gonna do a whole teaching on that, though I would love to, and I'll happily talk to you about it after service if you want, but scripture makes it really clear that this idea, this great commission of go make disciples of all nations was a really big deal to Jesus. See, scripture teaches us that Jesus died specifically for people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, which is why here and multiple other places throughout scripture, Jesus commands his whole church to make disciples of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And up until this point in the story, in Acts 8, that's not happening. People are making disciples where they're at, which is great. And please don't mis misunderstand me. That's necessary, but it's only part of the Great Commission. So I'm talking about Acts chapter 8, and we're looking at them kind of critically, like they weren't doing what God told them to do. But what about now? Certainly, Andrea, the gospel has left Jerusalem at this point. And the good news is that it has. Some of you have been from other countries. Some of you are from other countries. You've gone on short-term trips. You're like, well, Andrea, I know there's been progress on this. And there has, and that's the good news. The not such good news is that in the 2,000 years since Jesus gave this command, the gospel hasn't maybe progressed as much as we, it probably should have, honestly. Now, I'm gonna share some numbers, and you may have heard them before. You may have even heard them from me before, but I think that they're worth repeating because when I was reading this passage, this is what I'm strongly convicted of, guys. I cannot honestly preach this passage without bringing attention to the fact that Philip is with the masses in Samaria in signs and wonders leading people to the Lord, and God tells him to leave the masses and go to the one man to share the gospel with the one. Now, God is the God of all wisdom, and he has really good strategies. And this makes zero sense if the goal is to make as many disciples as possible. This only makes sense if the goal is actually what God did spell out to us, that his heart is to make disciples of every nation, tribe, and tongue. Otherwise, it makes no sense to take a chief evangelist where masses are coming to the Lord and send him on a road to share the gospel with one man. But here's what I think God knew. 
I think that God was willing to send his servant. He wanted to send his servant Philip to the Ethiopian because he knew if he could only get Philip there to share the gospel, to explain to him, then that gospel could go back to Ethiopia and to the surrounding regions. And the men and women made in the image of God and that part of the world would have access to the gospel finally. But what about today? We know this was God's heart in this story. I'm completely convinced of it. But what about now? Because God's heart has not changed. Today, 2,000 years later, the good news is, is that about 60% of our world has access to the gospel. The other side of that is, is that 40% of our world still does not. In 2,000 years since Jesus has given this commission, 40%, almost half, less than half, praise the Lord, still do not have access to this gospel. That's about 3 billion people. Now, I have a hard time sometimes even imagining three billion just seems really abstract to me. So I've, I've given this example before. If this aisle, if we, if this whole room represents the whole world, all of you, and this aisle down the middle from here over, this part of the world currently lives now without ever having any hope of hearing the name of Jesus one time. Now, this does not mean that they have not chosen to follow Jesus. There are tons of people on this part of the room who, who have not chosen to follow Jesus. I'm using you as the world example, not actually. And we need to go to them. But this part of the room, it's not that they haven't chosen to follow Jesus. It's that they've never been given the chance. And they were born, and right now they will live, and they will die, and they will never have the chance to hear the gospel one time unless something changes unless you or I do something and unless Phillips go to them. And church, I want, this is not the whole crux of the story, but I cannot preach this without bringing up God's heart for the nations, which was so on display with Philip and Acts, and it's still here today. I've heard a quote before, the only thing worse than being lost is being lost and no one is looking for you. And that's the reality for three billion of our brothers and sisters made in the image of God today. But the good news is that God so loved this eunuch that he sent a person to them. And I also know that God so loves this 40% of the world that he is sending Phillips to them today. Now, this passage isn't only about God's heart for the nations, though that's absolutely on display, and I want us to feel that this morning. But I think a big part of the heart of this and why Philip was even able to go to the one that Philip went to this um, Ethiopian was because Philip was in the habit of partnering with what God was already doing. And I think that this was, a, this was a normative practice for people that we see in the early book of Acts and it should be a normal part of the lives for people who follow Jesus today. But how, okay, Andrea, I agree with you, maybe you do. You know, how do oh, so I'll follow Jesus, but how, what, how do I know what God is already doing? How do I partner with God and what he's already doing? And if God is moving throughout the whole world, like clearly he's moving in this 40% of the world, but he's moving, if you're in this room right now, you're in the 60%, and so he's moving in your life, how do I know where specifically God wants to partner with me at? And so I see three clues to this that have really helped unpack this and helped me to start to maybe move clear in this direction in this passage. So the first one I see is that partnering with God requires connecting with God. Partnering with God requires us to be connected to God. In verse 26, it says, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip and said, go to a desert place. It said, arise and go. Now, it doesn't say explicitly Philip was having his quiet time or abiding with Jesus, but it seems that Philip may have been spending time with the Lord. At the very least, he was definitely in a place to hear clearly what the Lord was saying. 
if you want to partner with God, then you have to know God. And the more that we know someone, the more we typically know what they're doing. Jesus said himself to his disciples, he said, I only do what I see my father doing. We have to see what the father is doing and talk to him and spend time with him if we want to partner with him. And I want to state too that this idea of connection with the Lord, I do not want to just preach a sermon on go do good works for the sake of going and doing good works. Our connection with the Lord is so important to our wholeness and experiencing the goodness of God in our life. I don't get the idea that Philip begrudgingly left the place he was at when he heard the voice of the Lord, because I think he was connected to the Lord. And to be, um, he was connected to the Lord, and so he was able to respond out of joy. Now, I don't want to push us to be connected with God simply as a means to an end of getting uh, work done. But we see by Jesus' behavior, he makes it clear, he connected regularly with the Father, he connected with an inner three of his disciples, and he connected with the larger, the 12, and then larger crowds. Jesus modeled, we can't just pay attention to his words, which were absolutely go make disciples of all nations. We also have to pay attention to his behavior, which was modeled regular connection with God, and then also regular connection with safe community. Now, I also don't just see this in scripture. I just hit my 10th year of ministry at Greenhouse, and in 10 years, I'm telling you guys, the men and women that are being most used, being used by God in their cities, and our nation, and in the world, being used by God, are men and women who seem to prioritize these two things. They prioritize connection with God, and they prioritize connection with a healthy community. They focus on wholeness and health, but then they don't just stay there. They wanna be blessed by God, but they wanna be blessed by God so they can go and be a blessing to the world. Who here know, has anyone here been around when Missionary Sam has preached before? Anyone like Missionary Sam here? Yes, <laughs> I was say, I some of you do. So Missionary Sam is one of our heroes at Greenhouse. He is one of the people, Pastor Mike was talking about your generosity. You guys support him in wild ways. By the way, most people know about Sam because he helps fight human trafficking in really sustainable and holistic ways. Another reason we love Sam is he's planning churches in this portion of the world. But so Sam is amazing. Most people who spend more than five minutes with Sam think that his life is significant. Even if you don't agree with him, maybe on the God thing, like even from a justice being good to kids like standpoint and doing hard work that's necessary, people think his life is significant. Now, Sam has actually become a dear friend of mine, and I've gotten to spend a lot of time with him, and I can tell you what he talks about the most. It's not human trafficking. It's not church planting. He is always talking about what he has gotten out of his time with the Lord. Dan and I were at dinner with him like two weeks ago. He's coming back. He was just here for like two days. People got upset at me that he wasn't here on a Sunday. He'll be here in October. But we were at dinner with him, and he's like, hey, guys, it's getting late. I got to get back to my hotel because I'm going to wake up early in the morning because I have some hard decisions to make right now, and I need to spend time with the Lord. Sam always talks about spending time with the Lord. He talks about seeing a professional counselor and connecting with community. And he talks all the time about having the word of God richly in him. He spends time in the word of God to know the word of God. And I bring that up too. I think that Philip had the same practice as Sam, at least in knowing God's word, because I think it's important even for being Philip's to people because the eunuch was asking questions. Thank goodness that Philip understood Isaiah where he was able to break that down for the eunuch. And so church, I'm not trying to come hard at like BBB do, like spend time with God, but we need to know our Bibles because the eunuch was asking questions then and the world is asking questions now. 
And I think what I want and part of my heart for this this week is that we would be Phillips and that we would be available. This eunuch was like, how can I understand unless someone explains it to me? We, have to be, we don't have to be scholars. You don't have to be perfect. But there are Phillips in our world who are waiting for us to unpack scripture and to explain boldly but humbly God's word. Philip knew the word of God, but first he chased down a chariot, which is my second clue that I see from here is that to, to partner with God, you have to be connected with God. And to partner with God, it requires effort. Verse 30, Philip ran to the chariot. God, Philip didn't go to Ethiopia. God brought Ethiopia near Philip, but God didn't bring Ethiopia to Philip's doorstep. Philip had to go to another town, and then the Holy Spirit literally told him to chase down a chariot. Now, there are three main characters that we have read about in this passage, because I know it's a, kind of a long passage. One is Philip, who we've talked a lot about. The second is the Holy Spirit clearly at play, like he physically transports uh, Philip later down in the story. And the third is this Ethiopian, who is a eunuch. We're going to talk about him for a minute. Now, the Bible says that the eunuch had come to Jerusalem to worship and that he was returning. I want you to take note, the Bible doesn't say that the eunuch was returning from where he had been able to worship in Jerusalem. It just said that he went to Jerusalem to worship, not that he had. See, the eunuch would have traveled over 800 miles from Ethiopia, which is ancient Cush in the Bible, to worship in Jerusalem. Because the Ethiopian official had learned about the God of the Hebrews and wanted a chance to learn more. And because this was a man who had money and power, he was able to make the journey to go to the temple in Jerusalem to try to learn more about this God. But we know he would have been turned away because one, he was a Gentile, and two, he was a eunuch. And Old Testament laws forbid, I'm reading specifically from Deuteronomy, anyone who had been emasculated by the crushing or cutting away from entering the assembly. Gonna be clear for just a minute. This man was a eunuch, which means that he was forcibly sterilized. Most scholars believe this probably happened in his youth so that he was set up to be safe in the, in the, um, to be in the presence of the queen. The king didn't have to worry about anything happening if this eunuch served his wife. He was forcibly sterilized, probably through physical mutilation. And some of you are familiar with this because this practice still happens in our world today. And it was evil then, and it is evil now. And if anyone should have a chip on his shoulder to wonder if God is good, I would imagine that it was this man. The forced sterilization made him safe to be with the queen, meaning that he had influence and money from being in the queen's court. But also history teaches us that eunuchs were outsiders. They were mocked and socially just completely outcast. So we're talking about a man who was accustomed to social ridicule and shame, after he was forcibly mutilated, and then he travels all the way to Jerusalem to try to learn about God, and he's, passed, and he's turned away. Also in this time, and I know family's important now, but socially, family played a completely different dynamic back at this point in the ancient world. Family was everything. And this man's hope of a family, a future, a legacy, and his name had been forced away, forcibly stolen from him. And then this man is cast away from the temple. And so he's on his way back, presumably to Ethiopia from Jerusalem. But somehow, scripture doesn't clarify, he gets a scroll. And we know from, this, from this, reading this passage that the scroll that he had contained the words of Isaiah 53, 
which was also about a man who was treated unjustly in Jerusalem. And then Philip runs up to the chariot. And Philip probably sees at this point when he hears this man reading the scroll that this is a moment that he can unpack scripture and share the gospel and maybe one man is gonna come to faith. And amen, we do see that happens, but there is so much more going on. And Philip ran to the chariot. Philip was obedient and obedience does require effort. And then God does use Philip to change the narrative for, the, for this eunuch. Now, I want to point something out cool that I saw in this passage that I also see happening that applies to us today. The eunuch, which was Ethiopian, it was the Ethiopian eunuch, was in Jerusalem. Because at that time, the nations were gathering in Jerusalem. And church, the nations are gathering where we're here now. If you are here and you're from Gainesville or throughout most of the state of Florida or you're Tampa that's joining us, the Lord has brought the nations to where we're at. And the good news is, is that I think he is using already men and women to reach them with Philip-like stories of what we just read. And he wants to use us to bless the nations. He wants to use us to bless our neighbors, but also from the people from far away that he's bringing to us. And the exciting thing for me when I was reading this passage, I was like, oh, I see this happening in our church. I see this happening from people like Bria and Wesley Garrett and all of their leaders who are sitting with them who lead an international microchurch. And so each week they put forth a lot of effort, I'm sure, to clean houses and open their doors and welcome the international community so that they feel loved and welcomed, but also that they have a clear chance to hear the gospel. And I see busy couples like James and Elizabeth Gadsby. I don't know if they're in here. They're at the, yes, college heroes. The Gadsbys are leaders and have more influence in so many spheres of business and science in Gainesville and beyond. And yet they are always making time to be hospitable to college students and to open their homes and to disciple college students to make sure that students have the chance to hear the word of God and grow as disciples. And I could go on. When I was first writing my notes for the sermon, I had like eight stories and I was like, I can't do that. <laughs> but there are so many of you who are being Phillips to our city and beyond. If you want, if you're in here and you want to know what partnering with what God already looks like, that you can honestly look to your right or your left. You can visit a microchurch this week because I see things happening. I hear stories of people who are going out of their way to go to a celebration for someone. This was literally just happened a few weeks ago. Like, Andrew, I wanna go to a coworker's um, holiday. They're from another faith. How do I do that to be wise and love God, but also how do I do that to share that, like, but to be salt and light to them? This is happening all over. And this, I do like feel like is a word of encouragement for us, church. Do not give up hope because I think a lot of you, you do not see the significance that your faithfulness and partnering to the Lord is having, but it is having ripple effects in our city and the nations. And I think like Philip, we don't know the full effect of it yet, but I think that we will. Now, I want to be clear that extravagant effort will look different to different people and different seasons. I am not telling you that all of you need to uproot your lives and move to this part of the world. I am telling you that some of you are supposed to, and that is the call of God on your life. And when we are obedient to the call of God on our life, we will experience more peace and joy than we've ever experienced before. But extravagant effort can look different. Maybe for some of you, you're supposed to be a part of this international microchurch. You're gonna go to the microchurch table in the lobby after service. You wanna learn more and you wanna help welcome the nations where you're at. Or maybe you're gonna open up your home to one of the kids on the waiting list right now for foster care in our state. Or maybe you're like, hey, Andrea, I just know that you said some people were called to be Phillips. I'm not called to be a Philip, but I would like to change my finances and prioritize send, to send more Phillips to this part of the world. 
Effort will look different in different seasons and it will look different for different people. Do not judge someone's journey with the Lord or partnership with the Lord because it looks different than yours. Obedience is the key. Our God is faithful. And if we will connect with him and we will be obedient to him, it will require effort, but he, will, he wants to partner with us, church. Now, I know I just came, kind of came hard on do, do, do. So I wanted to share a real encouraging moment with you all. You will fail at this. The Lord will set up an opportunity where he wants to partner with you and you will fail. And how do I know that? Because I fail all the time. And I'm up here preaching this message. A few, a few weeks ago, I was at a grocery store I won't name. And if you're in Gainesville, you can guess. And I had just like come from the gym and I honestly was just not in the mood to make small talk. I think I was responding to an email on my phone and I just wanted to get through the line. So the, the cashier is trying to make small talk with me and I was kind of like friendly, but not really. So then she turns to the girl bagging my groceries and she starts talking to the girl bagging my groceries and it's a Friday. And she asks the girl bagging the groceries, do you have any plans this weekend? And the girl responds, no. And then the cashier looks at her and she says, you're not going to church on Sunday? And the girl bagging my groceries says no. And then the cashier responds, I kid you not, oh, honey, you're going to hell. <laughs> and then the cashier just keeps checking me out, like my bread and everything. At this point, I put down my phone and I'm like, what in the world? The girl who's bagging the groceries is trying to make eye contact with the cashier. She's clearly in emotional distress. The cashier's not giving her any time of day. I'm like, and then the bad girl looks at me and she starts, like tears are like welling up in her eyes. They're not coming down her face yet. That's to come. And she looks at me and she literally says, she goes, is that true? Church, you might not listen to me anymore after I finish this story. I failed. I paused. I was just like a deer in the headlights. In my mind, I was like, no. And I was like, well, maybe yes, but you want to say it in a loving way and like explain the gospel. And then I was like, oh, let me reach for a card because I always try to keep like invite to church cards in my wallet. So I think I remember like awkwardly finding my wallet to invite her to church. Like guys, I just blew it. Like 10 out of 10 failure. The girl starts crying more. The, the tears come out, you know, the eyes and down her face and she runs away. I guess there's some secret like um, employee only section at grocery stores because I went to try to find her. I couldn't. I went to my car and prayed. I tried to find her later. She wasn't there. I went back to that same grocery store like three days in a row and I could not find her. I failed. God was like, oh, I'm gonna create like a softball, like lob Andrea softball. She's my girl. She'll take it. I wanna partner with her in this moment. And I, I just monumentally failed. But this is what I can tell you. The Lord has used me since then. He continues to want to partner with me. And we will fail. The, righteous, the Bible says that the righteous fall seven times and they get back up. And the Lord is good and he is faithful and he has mercy. And if you've messed up here, like I literally had a girl ask me if she's going to hell church. I work out of church. And I was just like, oh, oh, oh. If you fail, <laughs> Jesus still loves you. And he will still use you if we're willing to exert effort and partner with him. And we do it and we have peace and hope. The only reason I can share that story right now is because we have peace and hope. And this is why, this is the last point. Because partnering with God requires connection with God. Partnering with God requires effort. But my favorite part of this is that partnering with God unleashes God's power. 
Now, the most obvious example of God's power being um, unleashed is we read in verse 36 that they just happen to come across water. And then probably, actually, that's a lie. That's not the most obvious example. It's actually at the end of the chapter where it says that Philip was like physically transported to another place. And I'm going to let Pastor Mike unpack that at a future time. But clearly, the Holy Spirit is working here. When we partner with what God is already doing, realize that he's always doing more than what we recognize. That is the nature of the gospel. It keeps on going. And we are so bad at recognizing significant things when they are actually happening. But when we partner with God, you are in the middle of something significant. Now, here's the thing. Peter see, or Philip seems to be doing well, and then he hears, go to a desert place. He had no idea what was about to play out that day. I can pretty much guarantee it. Then he shows up. There's a man reading scripture. He gets to unpack scripture and he gets to lead this eunuch to the gospel. And I'm sure Peter thought that was a win because lives matter to the Lord. But history shows us this story, these few scenes that God dropped Philip in on, they're only a piece of an entire movement that's with its ripple effect still in effect today. Because see, when you look in history, this specific Ethiopian eunuch returns to his home in Ethiopia and he shares the gospel there, and the evangelist saved him, and then this man becomes an evangelist as well. Jesus saved him, the evangelist did, but the evangelist shares the gospel. This man receives the Lord. He becomes an evangelist. He goes to Ethiopia, and the gospel ex explodes in Ethiopia, and it travels throughout Africa, but it doesn't stop there. We know that it traveled from Africa. The gospel traveled then to Europe, and from Europe to the Americas, it is entirely possible that you're in my access to the gospel in this room is a ripple effect of the movement that began with this Ethiopian eunuch knowing the Lord and then going and sharing what the Lord had done in his life. When you partner with God's heart, expect God's power. Talk about a significant life. I can't imagine, like, what an understatement to say that this Ethiopian man's life was significant. But this is my favorite part of the story and we're gonna close with this. And if you haven't listened to me and you've been taking a nap up to this point, no shame, I'm not even offended, but I'm asking you to listen to this because I feel like this is a part of the story that I hadn't realized before and the Holy Spirit has shown and it's beautiful and I want us to see who our God is. Look at verse 39. I'll put it up on the screen. Philip came out of the water. The, um, the Holy Spirit car carried Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Why was the eunuch rejoicing? Why, of all the few details of the story that we have in scripture, is the eunuch's emotional state recorded? Why, was he, why did he have joy? Salvific joy, yes, but I don't think it was just that. Because see, we know what the eunuch was reading. What he was reading earlier, we now identify as Isaiah 53. And he's reading a scroll. And this is what I need you to understand. He was not reading the Bible like this. The way that you and I read the Bible, where there are chapters broken down, I'll generally read a chapter and pause, or a chapter and stop, or so many chapters and stop. That was nor not normal practice back then. The eunuch was reading a scroll, meaning that the words just kept going, and they fit as many words on the page as they could back then for scrolls. That, it was not the same practice that we have now. So the same section that we know the eunuch would have been reading in Isaiah 53, maybe just three lines, honestly, down on the scroll, he would have come to Isaiah 54. And this is what he would have read. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, 
you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes for you will spread abroad to the right and the left and your offspring will possess the nations and you will people desolate cities. Fear not for you will not be ashamed. Do not be confounded for you will not be disgraced. You will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. The man who just traveled all the way to Jerusalem and was turned away because he was a eunuch, something probably forced on him in his youth, just read, go and make your house larger for all the children I'm gonna give you and forget the shame of your youth. God doesn't just save the eunuch. He goes to this man's heart and he throws his power and his goodness around. And this will be the last verse that we read. Probably if, this, if those verses were just a few lines under on the scroll, this would be a few more. He would come to Isaiah 56 and this is what he would read. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbath, who chooses the things that please me and holds fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name and they will not be cut off. How seen was that eunuch by the Lord. He was already saved, guys. Like he had already given his life to the Lord. He had already been baptized and the Lord moves in power because when you partner with God, expect God's power, but God's power is always how God shows his goodness in our lives and then he'll use it to others. But here's one question that has broken me this week that I want us to wrestle with for just a minute and then we're gonna close. What if the eunuch never got further down the scroll? What if he never got past Isaiah 53 because there wasn't someone there to explain it to him? What if he stayed confused at Isaiah 53 because there wasn't a Philip willing to go to him to unpack the scroll, to explain it so he could see and understand the beauty of the Lord and respond to the gospel? In other words, what if the eunuch's experience was like the reality of three billion of our brothers and sisters in the world today who do not have Phillips who are going to them, our brothers and sisters in places like India or Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan or Oman or Thailand or Tibet. There's so many other places throughout the world right now. And they are waiting and we are supposed to do something but here's the thing too, there you also have neighbors in your life who are waiting for you to unpack the scroll. I want us to do something and I want even the Lord to move this morning and I want us to have a fear and trembling and a desire in our heart to see the Lord move through the global church. But this is not just a message for the global church greenhouse. This week, 
you will have eunuchs in your, not actual eunuchs in your life, but you know what I mean? This eunuch in your life who is waiting for you to unpack the scroll. There are people at your jobs. There are people at your work. There are people, there are people in my neighborhood that I live with. And I'm like, oh my goodness, Lord, give me opportunities to unpack the scroll. And let me also wrestle with the reality of this truth as well and what I'm supposed to do. Because listen, God so loved the world that he gave his son. God so loved that eunuch that he sent a Philip. And God so loves your neighbors and your coworkers in this part of the world, he can wrestle with both, that he is sending us even this week to people to unpack the scroll. And whenever we partner with God, we don't have to fear. You might fail like I did, but God will always unleash his power and he will unleash his goodness. Last thing about the eunuch. History records that this eunuch went back to Ethiopia with the power and the goodness of the gospel. And he is regarded by Ethiopians now. You can look this up. He is the founder of the Coptic Church of Ethiopia. And he is called the father of faith in Africa. There are millions of believers as a result of this eunuch's faith. Do not miss this church. God took a barren man and made him a father of millions that the gospel has gone forth. He is called the father of faith in Africa and Africa is the root of the gospel going forth, even available to us. The world called this man sterile, but God called him a father. And there are some of you in this room now and the world has called you things. Your spouse, a family member, a friend, or a coworker, you have been called things. And I am here to tell you that you are who God says you are. You are not what the world says. God is not a man that he can lie. What we sing is true. You are chosen. You are not forsaken. You are not barren. You are not insignificant. He chose you, he wanted you, and you are loved. I was talking earlier about the unit. God so loved you that he sent his son to die so that he died to forgive us of our sins so that we could be reconciled to a perfect, sinless God. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this sermon, be sure to click that like button. It helps others to find our videos. You can also post a comment about your favorite part of the message. Another way to connect is by subscribing to our YouTube channel. I hope your week is wonderful. Live green.